Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. This is a season of change and transition, harvest, color, fading, and maturing. So somehow I feel that a story of transformation is appropriate. I have the honor of hosting a guest, Casey or Kimberly Ireton, to talk about Hans Christian Andersen's literary fairy tale, The Little Mermaid. The Disney movie has dominated the cultural memory and interpretation of this tale, but the original fairy tale is significantly different. It has this luminous, haunting beauty, and it's it's full of transcendent meaning. Kimberly will help us understand some of the images of the original tale in the light of scripture. Here's Kimberly's bio. Casey Ireton, or Kimberly, is the author of A Yellow Wood and Other Stories and The Circle of Seasons, Meeting God in the Church Year. She holds a master's in apologetics from Houston Christian University, where she studied literary apologetics and wrote her thesis on the gospel shape of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. She's an Anglican catechist and lay preacher and holds a monthly series called Saints and Angels on the Holy Trinity Edmonds Parish podcast in which she draws on scripture and Christian tradition to explore the life and the legends of a biblical saint. An avid reader, she especially loves old books and children's books. She lives with her husband and their four children in the Pacific Northwest. Kimberly graciously provided a recording of her reiteration of this tale. She couldn't read the entire original text. It's around 9,000 words, and that's, that's really a lot for one sitting. But she managed to encapsulate the magic of the tale in a wisely abridged form. So here it is, Casey Ireton reading aloud Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid in our conversation that followed. The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, retold by K.C. Ireton. Far out in the sea, the water is blue as the sky at dusk, and clear as glass, and deeper than many church towers stacked one on top of the other, and in the very deepest part of the sea is the castle of the Sea King, with coral walls and amber windows and roofs made of mussel shells that open and close in the gently moving waters. The Sea King had been a widower for many years and his old mother kept house for him. She was rather proud of her role as queen mother and used to wear 12 oyster shells on her tail where the other nobility might only wear six. But apart from this, she was a fine woman and excessively devoted to her six granddaughters, the princesses. They were all lovely girls, of course, but the youngest was the loveliest with pearlescent skin and eyes the color of the deeps of the sea. Like the others, she had no legs or feet. Her body ended in a fish's tail. She and her sisters used to cavort in the palace halls, where flowers grew out of the walls and the little fishes swam in and out through the open windows. Outside the palace was a large and beautiful garden with red and blue trees, with golden fruit and flowers that looked like flames when stirred by the gently moving water. 
Over all the sea bottom lay a fine blue sand that cast a curious blue sheen over the whole garden. In a dead calm, you could see right up through the far distant surface of the water and catch a glimpse of the sun. It looked like a wine-red flower from whose cup streamed all the light. Each of the princesses had a plot in the palace garden, shaped like a whale or a mermaid or a fish, but the littlest princess made her garden perfectly round like the sun and planted only red flowers in it. She had no greater delight than dreaming about the world above, and her grandmother told the littlest princess all she knew of ships and horses and men. The little mermaid delighted in the thought of flowers that smelled sweet and fishes that sang as they perched in the trees or flitted among the branches. Many a night she looked up through her open window, up through the dark blue waters to where the moon and the stars glimmered pale in the unsearchable distance, and she longed to rise and see the world above. When you are fifteen, said her grandmother, you shall have leave to go to the surface, but you shall have to wait till then. Five whole years! How could the little mermaid bear to wait so long? As it happened, the oldest princess turned fifteen that year, and she went up to the surface of the sea and sat on a rock in the moonlight and watched the ships going by and the lights in the city and heard the church bells and the crying of the gulls. She came home and told all she had seen and heard to her sisters, and the little mermaid's longing grew. That night, as she stood at her window and imagined the lights of the ships and the city, she fancied she heard the sound of church bells tolling above the waters, their ringing coming down, 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 to meet her, where she stood looking up. Year after year, her sisters went up to the surface of the water and came back to report all they had seen and heard and done, and with each new tale of wonder, the little mermaid longed more and more for the world above. Finally, finally, she turned fifteen, and on the night of her birthday, she rose through the water just as the sun was setting in the west, turning the sky to purple and gold. The air was still and calm, and before her lay a great ship with three masts. It flew only a single sail, for there was no wind, and on the deck there was music and dancing. As the night darkened, lamps were lit, till it seemed as if all the flags of the world were flying over the ship. The little mermaid could see people singing and laughing and dancing, and the most handsome of the people was the young prince with the big black eyes and the wide smile. He could not have been more than sixteen, and today was his birthday, and that was why all the people on the ship were celebrating. Later, when the night grew dark, they shot fireworks off the ship, and the little mermaid was mesmerized by the whirling suns and the firefish. There was so much light from the lamps and the fireworks that she could see everything aboard the ship perfectly, even the prince, who smiled and laughed and shook hands with the crew. It grew later and later, but the little mermaid did not leave. She could not take her eyes off the ship and the handsome prince. The lamps were extinguished, and the night turned dark, and there was a rumble in the depths of the sea. The wind picked up, and the sailors hoisted the sails, and the ship ran before the wind as the waves rose and fell, rose and fell, carrying the little mermaid alongside. Rain began to fall faster and faster, and the wind rose higher and higher, and the waves pounded the sides of the ship harder and harder, and lightning split the sky, and thunder roared. A jagged branch of lightning struck the mast and split it, and the ship heeled over, and water began pouring into her hull. The little mermaid saw the peril and swam toward the ship, dodging beams and barrels and broken bits of the ship that were driven about in the swirling sea. One moment it was so dark she could see nothing, not even the water before her. The next moment lightning lit the sky and she could see everything, 
all the men leaping off the ship into the water. She looked for the young prince and saw him just as he leapt into the sea. For a moment she rejoiced. He was coming down to be with her. But then she remembered that men could not live beneath the water. No, he must not die. She dove down into the water, rose high on the billows, searching and searching for the prince. When she found him, he was nearly spent and could hardly keep himself afloat in the stormy sea. His eyes were beginning to close, his arms and legs were too weak to move, and he would have died had the little mermaid not found him. She held his head above the water and let the sea carry her where it would. By dawn, the tempest was spent. The little mermaid saw land ahead and a small, calm bay with white sand, and she swam toward it. On the shore were green woods, before which stood a white church surrounded by a garden of fruit trees. Two tall palms guarded the gate. As the little mermaid lay, the prince on the sand, the church bells rang, and several young women came outside. The little mermaid dived beneath the water and hid behind a rock in the bay and watched as a young woman found the prince and called to the others, and they came to him and helped him to the church. Sadly, she returned to the palace under the sea. Day after day, she returned to the bay to look for the prince, but the fruit on the trees ripened and the leaves fell, and she never saw him. Finally, she could bear it no longer, and she told one of her sisters, who took her to the prince's palace. Night after night, she swam right up the canal beneath the marble balcony, where the prince would sit and gaze across the water, never dreaming that a little mermaid in the water below was gazing at him. Greater and greater grew her longing for the world above, and she asked her grandmother to tell her more about humans. We live 300 years, her grandmother said, but when we die, we turn to foam on the sea. We have no mortal souls, and so we never live again, but the humans have immortal souls, and when they die and their bodies turn to earth, they rise up and up and live forever and ever in the heavenly places. The little mermaid said, I would gladly give all my 300 years as a mermaid to spend one day as a human and have a share in the heavenly world. It's no good thinking such things, said her grandmother. So I must die forever and not hear the waves or see the sun? Is there no way to gain an immortal soul? No, said her grandmother. Not unless a man were to love you enough to marry you. If he were to so unite his life to yours, his soul would overflow into your body and you would have a share in the eternal destiny of men. He would give you a soul and yet keep his own. But that can never happen. Look at you. You've got a beautiful tail. Why would you want to trade that for those miserable props the humans call legs? That night, there was a ball at the palace. But the little mermaid could not enjoy it, thinking of the prince and the possibility of an immortal soul. She slipped out of the ballroom and out of the palace and through the garden and made her way to the lair of the old sea witch. The sea witch lived in a horrible wood with trees that were half animal, half plant, which looked like many-headed snakes growing out of the ground. Their branches were long and pliant and grabbed hold of whatever they touched and never let it go. The little mermaid stood terrified for a moment. Then she bound her long hair close to her body and began to swim through the wood. The snake-like arms reached for her, and she saw that each of them held tight to something. The white skeletons of men and animals, rudders of ships and chests, and even the skeleton of a mermaid. The little mermaid cried out in fear and hurried on. The house of the sea witch stood in the center of the wood, built of the bones of men. The sea witch smiled when she saw the little mermaid. I know why you're here, she said, and I can help you. 
Good thing you came today, or I couldn't have helped you for another year. She laughed, a horrible sound that frightened the little mermaid. Oh, yes, the sea witch said. I can make you a drink that will split your tail into two legs, just like the humans have. But it will hurt. Every step you take will be like walking on knives. And if the prince should marry another, then on the first morning after his wedding, you will turn into foam on the sea. Yes, said the little mermaid, though her face was pale as a corpse. That is not all, said the sea witch. I require payment, and the price you will pay is steep. You have the most beautiful voice of any mermaid, and that is what I require of you. My voice, said the little mermaid. Your voice. The little mermaid nodded. Very well, said the witch, and she scratched her breast till it bled and squeezed three drops of black blood into a cauldron. The steam rose in hideous shapes, and the witch cast this and that into the cauldron until at last she was satisfied. She poured the foul liquid into a vial. There you are, said the witch, and cut off the little mermaid's tongue. The mermaid took the vial and swam out of the wood and out of the water. The sun was not yet up when she reached the prince's palace. She pulled herself out of the water and drank the witch's potion, which burned and pierced her like a two-edged sword. The pain overwhelmed her, and she fainted. When she awoke, the prince was kneeling beside her, looking at her with his deep, dark eyes. He asked who she was and where she came from, but she said nothing, for she could neither speak nor sing. Kindly, he helped her to her feet, and as she took her first step, she felt as though she were walking on knives, so sharp was the pain. But she endured it gladly, for she was with the prince. Alas, she came too late, for he was to be married the next week, and though he treated her kindly and saw her to her comfort and well-being, he did not love her. His heart had long ago been given to another. She saved my life, he told the little mermaid. I'd been washed ashore after a shipwreck, and she found me. The little mermaid grieved for his mistake, for his sake as well as her own, but she could not cry and she could not speak. On the day of the wedding, the church bells rang throughout the city, and the little mermaid, dressed in gold and silk, carried the bride's train. Every step stabbed her like a knife. She did not hear the wedding bells or see the wedding rite, for she thought only of her coming death and all she had lost. Come morning, she would be no more than foam on the sea. In the evening, the wedding party boarded a ship, and there the prince and his bride were to spend the night. The music and dancing continued till well past midnight, but finally the prince and his bride retired to their bed in a magnificent tent on the deck, but the little mermaid sat leaning against the ship rail and gazing eastward toward the sun whose rising would signal her death. Then she saw her sisters rise out of the sea. They were pale, and their hair was shorn. We gave it to the sea witch, they told her, and she has given us this. They held out a knife. If you stab the prince through the heart, his blood will gush onto your feet. They will turn back into a fish's tail, and you can return with us to the sea to live out your three hundred years. Make haste! Either he or you must die before the sun rises. And they sank back into the sea. The little mermaid pulled aside the purple curtain of the tent and approached the bed where slept the prince and his bride. Her head was on his chest, and in his sleep he whispered her name. Gray light filled the tent. The knife quivered in the mermaid's hand. And then she cast it far out to sea, and where it fell, it shone red like blood. And in that moment, the sun rose. The little mermaid flung herself out of the boat and into the water and felt that her body was dissolving into foam. The rays of the sun fell warm upon the death-cold foam, 
and the little mermaid did not feel death. She opened her eyes and beheld the bright sun, and in the air above her saw hundreds of transparent forms and heard them singing a song of unearthly beauty. Come, they called to her, sing with us. And the little mermaid felt her body rising into the air, light and transparent as theirs. To whom am I coming? she asked, and her own voice was as beautiful as theirs. To the daughters of the air, they replied. Like you, we seek immortal souls. We bring gifts of healing and beauty and delight to the people of earth. At the end of three hundred years, we will receive an immortal soul and share in the everlasting happiness of humans. You have suffered and endured and become a daughter of the air, and in three hundred years, you too will receive an immortal soul. And the little mermaid raised her arms to the rising sun, and for the first time, she felt the gift of tears. Kimberly, welcome to Leaf by Lantern. Hi, Alicia. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to, to hear more about your work and, um, and this gorgeous fairy tale. So um, as we've been talking about, and as I said in the intro, the Disney version of The Little Mermaid pretty much dominates the conversation. That's, that's what people think of. Maybe some people are aware the original story is different, has a different ending, but that's just not, not part of our, our cultural awareness. But it's so beautiful. It's just it's it's full of mystery. It's full of wonder. So I'm really excited to hear more from someone who studied it. So first of all, can you tell me about the thesis project in which you studied this tale? Why you wanted to study Anderson? Um, a little more about the research process and what that was like. Yeah. So this was for my my final project at uh, Houston now Christian University. Um, I was in the, a Master of Apologetics program and my focus was on literary apologetics. And I did this project under Michael Ward, the author of Planet Nardia. So I feel very excited. I was very excited to get to take classes from him. And also my other primary professor was Holly Ordway who wrote um, Tolkien's Modern mm -hmm. Reading. And she has a new book out about, I believe it's about Tolkien's spirituality. I haven't looked at it yet, but I'm very excited to to check it out. Anyway, so it was, uh, I studied, did this project for Michael Ward and I was going to be part of a broader, what I envisioned that this would be like my, my, this project would be the beginning part of a book about fairy tales, doing theological readings of fairy tales. And so, um, I wrote an introduction about fairy tales generally, and then I did two chapters, two essays, one on the little mermaid and one on the snow queen. And then the third one that I was going to do was on the nightingale, but did not end up getting to do that for that project. So that's that's how this was born, uh, was just because I'm interested in fairy tales. I came to theological reading of fairy tales late in my 40s. Um, up to that point, I didn't realize that you could read them theologically. And then once I realized that, I was just fascinated, like, oh my goodness, this is a really interesting it opens the stories up in such fascinating ways. And as somebody who studied theology, I just found this absolutely fascinating. So that it felt like a, this nice intersection of the two things that I really love studying, which is theology and literature. I absolutely love that. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but just for anyone who comes across that and is like, wait, a, th a theological reading, like what, what does that mean? Could you give maybe a, a brief example or a summary? And we'll be talking about The Little Mermaid in this way, um, 
Well, so, I mean, I'm sure there are as many different ways to read theologically as there are people who do the theological readings. But when I, when I say it, I mostly mean like, I'm looking at this through a lens of like, what does this say about our life with God? What does this say about what it means to be human in relation to the divine? So that's mostly, that's mostly what I mean. I'll just stop there and we'll get into some of what I'm talking about when we discuss the story. It's so appropriate for this tale because if we only talk about it on the human level with nothing of the spiritual world you're missing on where we came from Mm -hmm. the the, the spark of humanity the breath of god bringing Mm -hmm. life to us so i absolutely love that so all right so we we identified some images we want to talk about in this uh, absolutely beautiful fairy tale so i'll just list the ones we're planning to go through and then we'll just go through in that order so we're going to talk about the world above especially the sun the mermaid's garden the prince the knife-like pain in the mermaid's feet, and the knife for killing the prince. So to start off with the world above, especially the sun, tell me about that. What, what What's going on there? Okay. Well, the sun is a central image in the fairy tale. Um, we'll talk about it more as we go along because it comes into pretty much every single one of those topics. Like the sun, mm. it's just all, it's, just like the sun, like it's all pervasive, it's omnipresent, but it's a very quiet presence and it's almost a hidden presence. And I think it wasn't until I really delved into the fairy tale and doing my research and just doing a really close reading that I was able to say, oh my goodness, that's what's happening here. Um, But it took me multiple readings and lots of digging and looking at the other images. So as we look at the other images, the sun will come into those and we'll talk about it more there. But the world above, the Little Mermaid's longing for the world above is present from almost the beginning of the story. I mean, he, Anderson, sets the stage and then he tells us about the, the, you know, that there are these mermaids and then there's this youngest mermaid and she's just fascinated by the world above. And the first thing we see is that she's got this garden and the garden is in the shape of the sun. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll talk about that in a minute. But mm. what he's doing here in all of this world above and so she lives on the bottom of the seafloor and she's looking up through all the ocean at the world above, mostly which of which she can see of it is the sun and then the moon and the stars. So she can see light. So there's all kinds of crazy stuff, like wonderful stuff that you can do with that imagery. Mm-hmm. But um, this, this, what he's trying to do here is what he's setting up an analogy is the little mermaid is like a human, right? Like, so she's the human, the human soul, whatever you want to say that. And her longing for the world above is a longing for transcendence. It's mm-hmm. a longing for the divine. It would be our human longing for the divine or for heaven, right? So he's creating this analogy between the little mermaid's longing for the human world and our longing for the heavenly world. So they're working on, that's kind of what he's doing there. And one of the things that in my recent, as I was reading the story, so she's begging her grandmother to tell her everything that the grandmother knows. And she thinks it's this, I'm using in my notes here, when I read, this is the Tina Nunnally, when I quote from the story, it's the Tina Nunnally translation mm-hmm. that I'm using, which is beautiful. So she, the little mermaid thinks, quote, it's especially strange and lovely that up on earth, the flowers had a fragrance while those on the seafloor did not. And so she has this image. So that fragrance of flowers is really important. And then for five years, she has to wait. Each of her sisters turns 15, goes up to the surface, comes back down and reports on what, what she's seen. And the oldest sister, when she returns from the world above, she tells of the great city and quote, of listening to the music and noise and commotion of coaches and people, seeing all the church towers and spires and hearing the bells ring, Mm. end quote. 
And so the Little Mermaid yearns even more to go up there and see for herself. And that night, as she stands gazing up through the water, she imagines she can, quote, hear the sound of church bells reaching down to her, end quote. So I love this. We've got the flower, the fragrance of flowers and the sound of church bells. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me of that beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, where he says, so she's longing for music she's never heard and the scent of flowers she's never found and news from a country that she has never visited. And um, that's that's a rough paraphrase of what Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. And so I think, again, this is Anderson pointing us to the human longing for the divine, the human longing for this place we've never been, but that we know is our true home. And that's what she's got. She's like, I don't like, I've never been there. I've only seen it from a distance. I've only heard rumors of it, but I know that I was like, I long for that place. And Lewis says elsewhere, if we find in ourselves a longing for something that we've never experienced, what else can we, can we assume, but that we were made for a different world. And so the little mermaid was not made to live on the bottom of the seafloor. She was made for this world above and she's longing for something more. And so this is a, um, an analogy or a metaphor for our longing for the divine. Mm-hmm. Our hearts are restless, O oh Lord, um, yes. until they find their rest in thee, St. Yes. Augustine. Oh, you, you ache for that which you know um, you belong to. We, we ache for God and his world. And that's the longing that drives the entire action of the story is her longing for the world above. Yes. So that's the driving force in the story. So the mermaid's garden then, which you said is in the shape of the sun. Tell me about that and and, um, and continuing with the, the sun imagery as well. Yes. So um, so she can't reach the human world. So she tries to bring the human world down to her, right? And so she's got this garden in the shape of the sun. And in it, she plants only red flowers, which are the color of the sun. So she's got mm-hmm. a sun-shaped garden with sun-colored flowers. Now, in my retelling, I there's, there's actually two really beautiful details that Anderson includes that I did not include in my retelling because my retelling was already going to be was already rather long and it was just going to make it even longer because these two details come back later in the story so it wasn't just like sticking them in the garden they actually have to come back later so i'm going to talk about those um, now the first other item that she puts in her garden is a white stone statue of a boy that has come to the bottom of the seafloor in a shipwreck mm. now so it's white stone it's come from the come in a shipwreck so the white stone is like tombstones it's in a shipwreck so again an image of death and it's stone so it's cold and hard and not alive mm. so all of these are images of death this boy the statue of this boy are images of death but there's also in the white stone there's also this like little glimmer of hope and beauty because it's reminiscent of the white stone that in Revelation 2, where Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it. So here we have this like little glimmer of like what's going to happen, a little bit of foreshadowing. She's going to get, she's going to have to pass through death, but she's going to get a new name. She's going to get a new identity. So that statue of the boy is really important. Partly, we learn later that the that the boy actually looks like the prince, and so there's also something else going on there with the prince looking like the statue. And we'll, I'll talk about that in a little minute. Mm-hmm. But there's this death to life imagery happening here with the statue. Sorry, the other item in her garden is a weeping willow tree. It's the only tree in her garden. And it's red like the other plants and its boughs hang over the statue and reach all the way to the blue sandy bottom. So it looks like the treetop and the roots are kissing. 
-hmm. Now there's so much going on here. So the tree is an image of the mermaid, but later mm -hmm. in the story, after the shipwreck, um, and she actually meets the prince, after the shipwreck, she cannot find him again. Um, I have that in the story. She can't find him again. She goes again and again to this place where she left and she never sees him again. And she becomes increasingly sad. And so she spends her days in her garden with her arms wrapped around, draped over the shoulders of the statue and her arms wrapped around the statue's neck. Um, so here she's becoming like that willow tree. So the willow tree becomes an image of the little mermaid herself as she drapes herself over the statue. And, mm -hmm. but the image is also Christological, right? It's a tree and it's red. So that's evoking the cross and the blood that was shed there. And then its top and its roots kissing is echoes um, Psalm 85, which says righteousness and peace shall kiss. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Psalm 85 has long been considered a Christological Psalm, the meeting of heaven and earth in Christ, and just as the tree's boughs meet the seafloor. So we have here this really deeply Christological image of the tree, both the, with the imagery of the cross, the salvific imagery, but also imagery of the incarnation with the boughs and the roots touching, heaven and earth meeting. So um, I love this so much. So the tree is imaging the little mermaid. It's also imaging Christ. So that's all this foreshadowing in this one image of her self-sacrifice to save her beloved and linking that sacrifice to the sacrifice of Christ. But the Christological imagery here also suggests that the little mermaid won't be able to enter the world above without someone or something reaching down and kissing her and drawing her up from the depths. Oh man, that's amazing. Um, Isn't so, it amazing? Yeah, like, that's like uh, so many layers and I such beauty. I'm so excited. Yeah, and, and just um, it makes me taste the, the grief and the joy again of the cross because it, it mm -hmm. I mean, East, Easter is, is glorious. It is very hard in its glory mm -hmm. too. You know, Good Friday. Mm -hmm. You also make me think of Gethsemane, tears, blood, mm -hmm. garden. Oh, so, so lovely. So if you know your Bible as you're reading this tale, like if someone read this for the very first time, they should be able to pick up at least on the emotional, like even if they couldn't articulate, but um, the fact that he's kind of telling you what's going to happen. Yes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of foreshadowing in the story. The images are very rich and can, you can just keep going, right? Like mm -hmm. that's one way of reading it. But I mean, I'm sure there are lots of other theological ways of looking at those, um, of looking at these images. Um, so I just, they're very rich. It's incredibly mm -hmm. rich. And um, one of the things that I, when I talk to people about reading just generally with, especially with kids, it's like, it doesn't matter if you don't pick up on these images, like mm -hmm. on the theological depths um, of the images, I think that those those images mean things and they kind of intrinsically mean things. And we're picking up on those meanings, even if we're not aware of them. And especially for people who are steeped in scripture, like those connections are happening subconsciously and we can bring them to consciousness. And that's really exciting. And I get really jazzed about that. But I think that they're still working on us, even if we don't articulate them, even if we can't consciously, if we're not consciously thinking about them. I think that the, the meaning and the depth, it's still there and it's still working on us. Yes. No, a amen. I think, um, I don't know if, if I knew more literary theory, I'd be able to articulate this better, but that's the affective part of stories, right? That reaches our hearts, um, mm -hmm. which again, I, 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 I'm concerned that our culture has forgotten that part that we need to be able to articulate the exact meaning and it can only be like one meaning mm -hmm. of every single you know carefully placed 
symbol. Whereas it's like, no, this, it's this rich world of images, which has a lot of layers, mm-hmm. a lot of truth, a lot of beauty. And as you said, it's, it can minute, like a good story ministers to you. Yes. And so if you like good food, you will yes. fill you up. And yes. those are the stories uh, which really capture people. But yeah, I'm not sure we always know why. And then, yeah, anyway, we, we discussed a little bit the issue of retellings that don't honor the meanings of the true story and just try to use it. Um, yes. Yeah, let's talk about that now. So just, okay. yeah, the, the issue of people being attracted to the beauty of this story, but not knowing what to do with it and misreading it. Yeah, well, and I think, so I think a lot of that is because of, we've been trained um, for generations to read at a single level, and that's the level of the literal, um, which we actually can't do because words don't work that way and stories don't work that way. But our our imaginations have been so shriveled by this literalist reading of stories that um, that I think we get scared sometimes when we realize that there are depths and we don't actually want to know what those depths are because we think it's scary. But I think that, I mean, and I think a lot of that is because of the direction that most literary criticism has gone in recent decades. Um, I confess, like until I read Planet Narnia by Michael Ward, I hated literary criticism because it was all about mm-hmm. taking things apart and like, I don't know, just pulling it apart. And I don't know, it, it didn't seem to like books. It didn't seem to like mm-hmm. literature. And I was like, I actually really like these stories and I want to read them. I want people who can help me read them better as opposed to people who are just like tearing them apart and like, that's all that was. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of reductionistic or, um, I just didn't like it. So Michael Ward was the first person I read who just helped me see how rich stories could be um, through his work with the the Chronicles of Narnia. And so Mm -hmm. that got me started on this, like, oh my goodness, there's so much depth and riches, so many, so much richness here in these images and you can plumb their depths. And, um, and, and that's part of what I mean by theological reading. Like it's multi-layered right? Like I'm giving you one way of reading these images, but there are other ways that you could read these images. And I don't think now some of some ways of reading are going to be mutually exclusive, but Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them are going to complement each other, or they're going to work in tandem, or you're going to be able to see it at different levels at different times, right? They can work together, all that multivalence and the multiple meanings. They are, we can hold them together simultaneously. And I think this is one of the things that the Christian tradition traditionally has done because Christianity is a religion of paradoxes and it allows Mm -hmm. us to hold multiple contradictory things in tension simultaneously. And I think that's one of the gifts that literature, when you can start to read it on these multivalent levels, can do for us is it can help us to hold multiple simultaneous meanings simultaneously. We can Mm -hmm. hold them together without having to pull them apart. So it's a very the way that I like to read is a very synthetic and not in the sense of fake, but in the sense of synthesis, um, mm-hmm. bringing things together um, and holding these different readings together. And I think that's something that we just are very uncomfortable with in our culture, partly just because we're not used to it. It's something that we haven't been exposed to. And it's something that um, that our reductionistic heritage for the last hundred years or so has made foreign. And so it's just not something that we are familiar with. But as, as I've grown in my ability to do this, just the riches of stories have opened up for me. And I, and also the riches of scripture, like I'm reading scripture Mm -hmm. with new eyes and seeing like, oh my goodness, how did I not notice that? I've been reading my Bible for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to God, like God, God is the God of truth and joy and beauty as well as justice and a good story, you know, reminds you of of the richness. Um, 
I remember reading Planet Narnia and just being stunned. Just like, this is what it's supposed to feel like to read something and love it and study it, study it so you yes. love it more. Yes, exactly. Instead of studying it so you can't stand it. Exactly. <laughs> that seems like, I was like, if that's what we're doing, that's just such a travesty. It it's is. such a travesty to me that you would study something until you hated it. Like what? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, can you just quickly give me the example of a literary reductionist reading of The Little Mermaid? So we've just started going through the images and the theological reading. But for anyone who's like, wait a minute, what does it mean to read? Like, yeah, that's that's our default way of reading. But can you can you give us the example of a lit like a literal and reductionistic reading of The Little Mermaid? So I think that like a, a basic one would be, okay, she sacrifices her life. So first she's like walking on pins and needles and knives. So mm -hmm. there's this huge, this incredibly painful transformation that she's, that she's gone through for the sake of a guy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then at the end she gives, this guy is kind of a pansy, honestly, in the, in the, in the Anderson story, he's not a great guy. He's just like, he's sort of clueless and self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. And then she gives her life for him. And so she's like sacrificed her life her comfort, her well-being for a guy. Mm -hmm. And like, well, who wants that? Like, mm -hmm. that's super anti-feminist and we don't want, we don't want yeah, to, like, we don't touch model. that. Yeah, bad role model. We don't want this. This is bad. So I think that that would be um, an example of a reductionist reading where you're just, you're just reading it on the literal and, and like you're reading it on the literal level and you're not paying attention to what's actually happening in the story and to what the images are doing and to what, what, Anderson is trying to do in the story. You just, mm -hmm. you read it, take it at face value and like, that's dumb. And yet people still seem to like the story, strangely enough. So, so that's a, that's a good transition. So, so we've, we've gone through some of the images of the world above and the garden, which are so beautiful. And we could spend the entire episode there, but I do want to hear about the other ones you mentioned. So the prince, so a bit of a pansy, like on the literal level. Yes. Um, he yes. Made heart drop. Um, <laughs> who, you know, he, he, he does not rescue her. That's, no. that's true in the story. Um, so tell me about her. him. What's what's going on with him? Okay. So um, just to review, the Little Mermaid finds out that the people don't live as long as the humans don't live as long as people. Mer people live for 300 years and then they turn to dust or they turn to foam on the sea. Um, humans live a much shorter lifespan, but when their lives are when they die, they have immortal souls. And so again, I'm going to read from Tina Nunnally's translation. She has the grandmother say, just as we rise from the sea to look at the land of humans, they rise up to the lovely unknown places we will never see. And so again, we have this analogy going, right? Like it, I don't think it could be clearer what the analogy is based mm -hmm. on that passage right there, that the little mermaid's longing for the human world is analogous to our longing for the heavenly world. Okay. So the little mermaid says, I'd give, I'd give, all my 300 years to be human for one day and have a share in the heavenly world. And the grandmother says it's not possible, not unless a human loves her enough to marry her. And again, I want to translate a quote from Nunnally's translation where the grandmother adds that this man must, quote, promise faithfulness now and for all eternity, end quote. Mm -hmm. And then his soul will flow into her body and she would share in the eternal happiness of humans. Anderson is laying it on thick here. Faithfulness now and for eternity. Well, who can be faithful from now until eternity? Like that's clearly only Christ. Only Christ can be faithful from now till eternity. And the union of the prince's life with her life in marriage, 
causing his soul to flow into her body. Again, this is an image of Christ pouring himself out upon us through the Holy Spirit. We could talk about communion. If you come from a sacramental tradition, that the, the, the participation in the life of Christ through the act of receiving communion. So at this point in the story, if you are familiar with fairy tales, you're thinking, all right, this prince is going to rescue her, right? Like he's setting mm -hmm. it up so that the prince will rescue her. And then he adds more to that. When we first see the prince, um, on the ship, um, when she comes to the surface, it says that she, the lanterns are lit on the ship and they look like all the flags of every nation fluttering in the breeze. Mm. And so here we have, here's this prince. He's the son of a king, but he's not just the son of a king. He's the son of the king, the king of the whole world as represented by those all those lanterns that look like the flags of the nations. So this is further reinforcing this idea in our minds that this is a prince like most fairy tale princes who's a christ figure and he's going to come and he's going to rescue the little mermaid and he's going to be the one to give her an immortal soul so then the roles reverse and the little mermaid rescues the prince but he doesn't see her he doesn't know that it's she who's rescued him and she returns to the sea and i talked about this earlier her only solace is to sit in her garden with her arms around the stone statue that looks like the prince but clearly isn't this is a dead thing. She neglects her sun-colored flowers, which grow out over the pathways and up into the branches of the willow tree until her garden becomes quite dark. Mm -hmm. Maria Tatar suggests that the Little Mermaid's devotion to the prince may block the light of the sun and thereby stand in the way of her salvation rather than promoting it." End quote. Mm -hmm. So here we have a hint that the prince may not be the salvific Christ figure after all, and also gives us a hint of what is. I love that. And um, I know Maria Tadar is, is one of the big voices in fairy tale scholarship, right? And mm -hmm. she, she'd more tend to agree with this as, a, as, as kind of a negative thing that the Little Mermaid yes. is wanting to sacrifice herself. Yes. But, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. If you're outside the Christian framework, um, so, uh, one sacrificing you know, yourself for another, it can be kind of a good thing, but it's also kind of a bad thing because we should be about empowering ourselves, right? Right. But, right. Yeah. The, the notion of self-sacrifice is it's troubling and problematic in our contemporary culture. It's just mm -hmm. not something that we um, like on the one hand, we can, I think there are probably places where we can recognize it as a beautiful thing, but mm -hmm. I think for the most part, we just see it as a waste. Yeah. So she makes the deal with the witch, which yes. we could probably spend a lot of time there. Oh but... my goodness. There is so much going on there, which we can't get into, <laughs> but yes, she makes the deal with the witch. And so she gets, um, legs, but um, Disney definitely did not include the knife-like pain that no. she suffers. So tell me about that and what's going on there. Yeah. So the knife, um, these two knife images, the knives like that she's walking on and then the knife that is given to her to kill the prince with, like they're very intentionally linked, right? So we've got, um, every, she's made this deal with the witch that she's giving up her voice and she's going to get a pair of legs, but she's going to be in pain every time she takes a step. And in the other part of the deal is that if the prince marries someone else at dawn on the day after the wedding, the little mermaid will become foam on the sea. So her life is forfeit if he marries someone, someone else. So we have bad magic happening here, right? It's death dealing and it's destructive. And so she's actually placed herself under a curse. She gets legs, but she feels like she's walking on, um, again, the Nunnally translation on pointed awls and sharp knives. So I skipped a lot in my retelling here. Um, in Anderson's original, the Little Mermaid is with the prince for many months 
it's, it doesn't specify how long, but it's clearly a significant stretch of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I say that she's, he's kind of a pansy because in my story, he's just already engaged to somebody else and she comes too late. But in the original version, she shows up, he actually really cares for her, but he treats her like almost like a puppy. Like, mm-hmm. like she's like this pet and he's completely clueless and, and really self-absorbed because when like, he like just seriously, you can't tell that this girl is like falling all over. Like, I don't know. It just strikes mm-hmm. me. He's very young. And I have to keep reminding myself in the story when she meets him, he, she says she could not be more than a year older than she was, which means it's his 16th birthday when we meet mm-hmm. him. So he's maybe 17. I was like, I have to give him a lot of like, humanly, I have to give him a lot of grace as a human 17 mm-hmm. year old. He's probably as clueless. He probably has no idea that this girl is in love with him. Or if he does know it, it's, you know, he's 17 and he's selfish. So, um, Anyway, she dances for him, though it feels like she's treading on sharp knives. She climbs mountains with him, though her feet bleed. And so for many months, this is going on. It's not just a couple. I think I have it like two weeks in the um, in my retelling. But it's many months that she is in constant pain every time she takes a step. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he marries someone else, um, the girl that he thinks saves him, saved him from the sea because he doesn't know that that was her, the Little Mermaid. So as readers, we feel the horrible irony here. This is not how fairy tales are supposed to work. I certainly did. I was like, I don't know what the first few times I read it, I was like, what is Anderson doing here? Like he mm-hmm. set it up so that this prince is going to be the salvific Christ figure and he's not. What's going on? He's supposed to be Christ to her humanity and he's supposed to give her the love and immortality that she longs for. And instead, her life is forfeit. And when the sun rises on the morning after his wedding, she's going to become foam on the sea. And then we have her like dark night of the soul and the moment of her deepest temptation when her sisters bring her the knife on the wedding night and say that if she stabs the prince through the heart, she'll become a mermaid again and she can live out her 300 years under the sea. So this knife is a symbol of every step that she has taken since she entered the human world. She cannot win an immortal soul, but she can inflict on the prince the pain that she has suffered for his sake and so extend her life back to its normal span. So she's got this choice. She can take the prince's life and save her own, or she can save the prince's life and lose her own. She can try by bad magic and cunning to undo the curse under which her life is forfeit, or she can submit herself to the curse. And of course, she flings the knife into the sea and where it falls, the waves look red like drops of blood. And then she flings herself into the sea and feels her body dissolve into foam. She submits herself to the curse in order to save her beloved, which is clearly an echo of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But this act of self-sacrifice also embodies Jesus's words, whoever wants to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we, here we have like the prince does image Christ after all, just not in the way that we expected, not in the way, the normal way of fairy tales. He's not the salvific Christ figure, but he's the Christ for whose sake we lay down our lives. And inherent in the words of Jesus is a promise that those who lose their lives for his sake will be saved. And that's when we have the moment of grace, the eucatastrophe, as Tolkien called it. Mm-hmm. The sun rises and its rays fall gentle and warm on the cold sea foam. I think some of the trans, I think the word deathly or deadly is in there, the deadly mm-hmm. cold sea foam. And the little mermaid does not feel death. She opens her eyes and looks at the sun, the light to which she has been drawn from the very beginning of the story. She first saw the sun, and here's the Tina Nunnally translation, as a crimson flower from whose chalice all the light streamed. That's at the very beginning of the story. And I just think, okay, we've got this image of the sun as 
it's the sun, it's, but it's this image of Eucharistic wine, right? Being poured out mm-hmm. on the little mermaid on all of humanity. And it's also this image of the sun as a flower um, from whose chalice all the light streamed is also an echo of Dante and the divine comedy at the very end when he sees the vision, the beatific vision of God as a mystic rose. And then of course we have the sun as Christ, or I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Christ image is an image of the risen and rising and risen Christ, the light of the world. The sun is this kind of omnipresent, um, image in the story, but it's very quiet and it's very, it's almost hidden. And in some places actually is hidden because she looks up at night, she's looking up at the moon, which is the reflected sun, right? So we see the sun even in its absence in the story. It's all over the place when you start to look for it, but it's very quiet. So when you're first reading it, you don't even notice it. And this, again, this is kind of C.S. Lewis's the Kappa element and what he was trying to do in the Narnia stories where he's hiding God, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the weaving God into the whole texture and feel of the story. And I think that Anderson is doing something similar in this story with the sun. So when the sun's rays touch the little mermaid on the morning after the prince's wedding, um, she opens her eyes and she looks at the bright sun and then she sees the daughters of the air. And this is again, the the Tina Nunnally translation, their voices were melodious, but so ethereal that no human ear could hear them just as no human eye could see them. And she's rising higher and higher out of the foam. And when she asks, who am I joining? Again, Tina Nunnally, her voice rang like those of the other creatures, so ethereal that no earthly music could reproduce it. So here she has this heavenly voice that she has received. So her beautiful voice, which was more beautiful than any other mermaids down below, which is why the sea witch wanted it, has been restored to her. Her body's been transformed into the body of a daughter of the air, creature she didn't even know existed. And like the mermaid, their eternal life depends on an outside power. After 300 years of striving to do what good we can, we will be granted immortal souls and share in the eternal joy of humans. So instead of eternal death, which is what she was expecting when she flung herself into the sea, the little mermaid receives a new voice, a new body, a new life, and the promise of immortality. And she raises her clear arms up toward God's bright sun, which was her first love and which first taught her to desire life in the world above and the sun whose warm and gentle kiss raises her from death to new life. The kiss. The kiss. There's a kiss. There's a kiss. The the kiss of deliverance, not from a human prince, but yeah. Oh, my goodness. From an image that is so richly Christological. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's when you really look at it that way, it's a feast. Like you really, you really feel it filling you up. Um, Oh, it's so good. I keep thinking of, of different threads. I have to like, like, pick one um, to ask you about, but um, let's see, going back to her choice to fling the knife into the waves to not Mm -hmm. kill the prince and to sacrifice herself. I think um, going back to self-sacrifice a little bit, there's this beauty in fiercely desiring to do what is good that Mm -hmm. I I don't think is, is part of a lot of, I won't say all, a lot of modern cultural conversations. Like you sense it in Jane Eyre, you sense it in the Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Mm -hmm. Anne Bronte, um, Jane Eyre, uh, Charlotte Bronte's sister. Have I just read, read Agnes Gray. I have, it's been years since I read Tenet of Wildfell Hall, mm-hmm. but I actually just read Agnes Gray by Anne Bronte this summer. Same thing. Like mm-hmm. the character is just like true North. <laughs> and that's like her whole orientation is true North. I'm going to do what is right, regardless of the consequences. And then the fact that it's an act of grace that turns her into one of the daughters of the air, because she could mm-hmm. not, she had no idea that that was a possibility. Right. That, was, that was a deliverance. And um, that was something Emma Fox talked about like that that hope of grace, that fact that I, I can't save myself, I right. need help. 
since I think that's one of the things that I think our contemporary culture finds problematic about fairy tales just generally is that almost, I would say always there's outside help. Like the hero or heroine mm-hmm. cannot do the thing that he or she must do on her own. Like they, it's just not, they need help, whether that's help in the form of animal friends or help in the form of spiritual help, like whatever it is, there has to be some sort of external help that they receive. They can't do it on their own. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just flies in the face of our desire for autonomy and self-actualization in, uh, and when I say self-act, like the self-actualization of our desires as, and like our petty desires, as opposed to like mm-hmm. what we really want, like we des- what we desperately want deep down. And, and I think that all of these fairy tales, they are pointing to that. Um, but again, if we read them on the surface level, we're going to miss 90% of what they're saying to us. Yes. Yes. And so that brings me to kind of a final question. This is this is a bit of a surprise one, so we can we can work through it together. But um, we've talked a little bit about the Disney version and how that uh, there's so much of the spirit of the fairy tale that no, that doesn't make it in. So, as someone tackling a retelling who wants to honor scripture, who wants to do a theological reading, what are some suggestions you might make in someone who's trying to spin a new story out of this tale that honors the tale? Well, so I think I did actually think about this. And one of the, mm-hmm. the main thing that I came up with was the ending. Like, what kind of ending do you want? Do you want to keep the the ending that Anderson has where she is transformed into a daughter of the air? Or do you want a more traditional fairy tale ending where she ends up marrying the prince? So um, if you want to go with a more traditional fairy tale ending where she ends up marrying the prince, I think there's a couple of things that you would need to think about. Um so first of all, you need to rethink the character of the prince. Like he needs to be more noble. He <laughs> can't mm-hmm. just be, can't be the kind of self-absorbed um, pansy that he is in Anderson's story. So he needs to be more worthy of the Little Mermaid's sacrifice. And then the other thing that you need to think about is like, she's placed herself under a curse. So how are you going to get that? How are you going to resolve that? And so one of the ways, if you are going to end up with the, if you want to have like the happy wedding ending, and I, I think that's a good ending. I just want to say like, like that is our ending. That's why so many fairy tales end with a wedding is because it's pointing toward our future, which is a wedding feast, the wedding of the lamb. So this is a good ending. I don't want to denigrate the the ending of the wedding. I love happy endings and I love the ending with the wedding. So Mm -hmm. if in this story you wanted to do that, um, one of the ways that I think that one of the, you'd have to think about the curse and how you're going to resolve that. And one of the things that um, I think you could do um, is have the prince actually go down into the sea and defeat the sea witch so this is mm-hmm. like and this is a this is a symbolic death right he's going down into the depths of the sea he has to do battle with the person under who has placed the curse on his beloved and then he comes back up to the light so we've got this death and resurrection imagery happening for the prince and you'd have to decide do you want this just to be a symbolic death like um beowulf going down to battle grendel's mother or do you want this to be like an actual death like he goes down he does battle with the sea witch and he is he dies, like physically dies. And in Anderson's story, I mean, there's plenty of people dying. And one of the reasons why the Little Mermaid rescues the prince is because she knows he can't live underwater, right? So you could do something with that if you wanted to. So you could have a physical death. And then how, if you decide to do that, like how are you going to bring him back to life? And again, you could bring in the sun and have the sun be some related to his revivification in some way. Mm. You could do... Um, some sort of kiss um, where she kisses him because she has given so much. She's like 
she's laid down so much and suffered so much for his sake at this point. So you could do something with that. I think that there are lots of ways that you could do that. But I do think that if you are going to have a happy ending, um, you're going to have to figure out how to undo the curse. And I do think in order to undo the curse, there has to be a death, whether that's symbolic or literal. Yes. So yeah, that's what totally. I would say. Mm. Oh, that's so the, the factual concrete thing of like, there needs to be some kind of a death is just is just so helpful. That's the kind of boundary where creativity thrives. Right. Um, right. How are you going to do the death? And I think in most stories, I won't say all, but in most stories, there is some kind of death, right? And most of the time, it's going to be some sort of symbolic death or a metaphorical death, but there's going to be some kind of death in almost any story that you write, because that's just the pattern of reality, right? Is yes. that in order to achieve new life, we have to go through death. There has to be some kind of death that happens so that we can die to the old thing and rise to the new one. Yeah, but this is a good time um, for me to ask. So thank you so much for joining today, Kimberly. Um, oh, just it was so much fun, Alicia. Like I love geeking out about stories and to have somebody who loves geeking out about stories to geek out with is just so fun. So thank you. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Good for both of us. So as we close, um, can you tell me more about the special offer you're giving podcast listeners and um, yes. and more about your your newest work? Um, yes. So I last month, September, uh, my first fiction work was published. It's a collection of short stories. It's called A Yellow Wood and Other Stories. Um, the title story, A Yellow Wood, is relatively long. It's almost a novella. And mm -hmm. if you are, if your listeners are interested, um, I am offering the first two chapters for free over on my website. So you can go to kcierton.com and type in your email address, and I will send you the first two chapters of that story. And that'll give you a taste of whether or not this is going to be your thing. And then if you like it, please go buy my book. There's links in the bottom of the, at the end of the, the PDF that I'll send you that will take you to where you can buy the book if you like it. And if you don't like it, like totally get it. Not every book is for every person. So that mm -hmm. is, um, that's what I'd love to have people go do is go try it out, see if they like it. Reading your work, especially A Yellow Wood was just, um, you are a gracious writer. Like it's, it's so beautifully told. I, I did not feel like I was reading. I felt like I was there. Well, thank you so much. I thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Thank you. So highly recommended. Um, you also mentioned, is your October book club going on? And on the 23rd, we'll be discussing the last two stories in the collection. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's just a group of people who like to talk about literature. If you've ever wanted to talk about a book with its author, like here's a really easy way to do it. Hop on Zoom for an hour and um, we'll talk about it. And most of what I talk about are like the Christian themes and images, because that's what interests me in a story. So that's primarily. So basically what we did here today with A Little Mermaid is what we're going to be doing, but just with the stories in my, the, the last two stories in my collection. Mm -hmm, wonderful. So a rare privilege to actually you know, hear, hear a writer um, explaining their work and, and um, with, with people who love it. So yeah, I definitely, definitely recommend that. So thank you so much for joining today. I, I was really honored. Well, I am blessed. It was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you.